everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of Brewer Magazine, the podcast. I'm your host and the publisher of Brewer Magazine, Tyler Montgomery. In this episode, we're kicking off with question by the old 97s is our intro. And while that may seem just a little bit kind of out of the ordinary and make us seem like we're really big music enthusiasts, well, we are. But we also have a purpose. And our purpose is our teaming up with Wild Goose Mahin Scott Fabricating for Craft After Dark charity event at Craft Brewers Conference this year. The event will be Thursday, May 3rd at 3rd and Lindsley, and you'll be able to get your limited VIP passes uh, beginning May 1st uh, by dropping by either the Scott Fabricating booth or the Goose Mahin booth um, at the Craft Brewers Conference. The uh, sponsors that are behind this event, uh, the Craft After Dark, include uh, Bounty Bev, of course, The Brewer Magazine, uh, Chart, Inc., Eco Vessel, Festo, Filtech, uh, Markin, Image, Modular Conveyor Express, and Pack Leader USA. So make sure when you get to CBC, one of the first things you do is you go by and see one of the booths and get your tickets to the old 97s. You're gonna have a great time, it's gonna be a lot of fun. In addition, we have a great little piece that's also focused on our uh, March-April 2018 issue. Uh, It was an interview that our editor John Seacott did with Tom Davis, who's the co-founder of Thomas Creek in South Carolina. Uh, They had a lot of of good things to talk about. You'll have to go to our March-April issue um, once it comes out here in a couple of weeks uh, to really dive into what they had to say for an entirety. Uh, But we wanted to give you a little bit of audio version with uh, John talking to Tom about uh, their barrel aging program, how they've uh, developed this and how they've grown it uh, substantially over the years. Um, They've made a BBA Belgian quad um, that's supposedly amazing. They call it Bull Sluice. But uh, they do a really cool, they've been working on this. They've been working, they worked out the kinks. They've worked through all the uh, little nitty gritty pieces that um, you know frustrate all us brewers with uh, uh, barrel aging. But like I say, without further ado, I want you to kick back and listen to this interview between our editor John Seacott and the co-founder of Thomas Creek, Tom Davis. Hope you all enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. Also, don't forget to get your tickets for the uh, old 97s at Third and Lindsley. Drop by the Wild Goose Mahine and the Scott Fabricating booth. Hope you have a good one. You Cheers. Should say yes to once in your life. Maybe tonight I got a question. I was lucky enough, you know, I've, I've been brewing for close to 32 years. Not all are professional, just about 22 of it professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, pretty much everything that we do at Barrels today, I was uh, I learned not to do at all. <laughs> you, you did you do an exact opposite of what I was taught to do uh, in, in some of these barrels, putting things in there that, that you work your entire life to keep out of your brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a learning curve for me. Luckily, one of the uh, brewers that I had uh, at the time uh, was uh, kind of a king of funk. He loved uh, anything funky, pretty much, and he had his own cultures at home that he had uh, been working on for several years. And this was a kid that I had, uh, met. Uh, he used to come and buy homebrew supplies from me when he was 17. Uh, so 
uh, he's been he's been in the industry for a little while and really interested in it. And uh, between you know reading anything I get my hands on uh, and his actual hands-on experience uh, with with dealing with with bugs, uh, that's I think that helped us a lot to be able to springboard into that program fairly easily. Now, of course, the the bull swoops doesn't have bugs in it. It's just mm-hmm. a bourbon barrel age, which is a little bit easier. But there again, the experience of, of using fresh dump barrels taught me a lot uh, of of the you know how you can control the quality. Uh, you know, not every barrel is is created equal, and mm-hmm. I'm not really saying that it's the the bourbon itself. It helps to have a good bourbon. Uh, as the backbone, sure, but uh, just having that freshness, I think, helps a lot uh, with getting a better quality um, out of the barrel. Um, and we've been building this program for right at three and a half years. You know, started with two barrels that, that we just kind of fell over somebody wanted to get rid of type thing. And then uh, we... Uh, started buying some more when we could find them, um, and it's just been adding to it a little bit every year. Um, it was almost two years ago now we were able to get hold of uh, some Bacardi dark bomb barrels, um, hmm. which I've heard are hard to get, and we but we kind of have an insider on that when we actually make a beer for, for Bacardi. Um, and so we 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 kind of had an inside track on that. And, nice. uh, that's that's the next one that's coming out uh, that that I think is is absolutely up on that top tier. Um, and it's called Havana Marone, uh, which Havana for Cuba, uh, that's where Bacardi originated. Um, and the Marone actually means brown. Um, and so it's a temper or I'm sorry, about eight point two percent. Uh, Imperial English Brown Ale that we put in these Bacardi barrels, and it was close to a year that they were in the, in that barrel, uh, in those barrels, should I say? And uh, it really, really aged well. And so that was another, you know, type of uh, liquor barrel that we used that, that that really came out with a nice molasses back to it, um, which is why we paired it with a with an English style brown ale. Uh, just kind of fit, um, and uh, we also, you know, have gotten some Molo barrels, and we've gotten a few barrels from uh, uh, Biltmore that we've been really using as our, our the backbone of our our bug series, if you will, our, our mixed culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, uh, we have a, a really really nice house mixed culture that that's. It's, it's a combination uh, of a little bit of sour with, you know, uh, a uh, not a over-the-top horse blanket uh, feel to it, aroma and flavor, um, and it it just melds together real well. Um, and we're we we try our best to keep that one going as long as we can. Uh, sure. We, we'll pull the barrels, and when we pull them, we'll pull some of the slurry out of the bottom and, and propagate it up some more. And so, it's, so far, it's working well to keep that house blend going. 
it, but we've also added a few to it. You know, when we get new barrels, when we're done with the bourbon barrels, we then run one more run through it called, we literally call it monkey barrel because it's a banana split chocolate stout that we make. And we decided to make that base and throw it in the barrel to see what it do. And it really came out well. Not as much bourbon, obviously, through the second run. Uh, but once we get done with that, then we take that, those barrels and that's when we start putting the bubble to them. Sure. And, uh, so we're really in the first stages of, uh, the, the, the runs after the, the straight beers come out of them. Gotcha. Uh, so I mm. don't, we're not sure. We're, we're crossing our fingers that everything, you know, follows suit and, and comes out wonderful. <laughs> now, obviously, this, uh, it's one of these things where I know brewers love to be able to do all this. There's still this ends up being you know limited at limited edition batches, small batches. Um, right. But at the same time, I mean, this is what this challenges you. It gives you experimentation. I mean, obviously, you guys got your cores that you got to work through. But how much fun is it to be able to experiment and play and and just come up with ideas that you know that give yourself some some sort of challenge? Well, I mean, that's to me that's that's the passion. Um, I mean, if it was day in, day out, the same beer over and over and over again, it would get monotonous as hell. And it would not be nearly as enjoyable as as the ability to to experiment and go out on that limb and say, okay, well I don't know if anybody's ever really done it quite this way and, and try to try to come up with something different. These days it's hard to come up with something different because you know, you think you come out with this great idea and you find out that ten other breweries have already done it. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a challenge uh, to me um, as a as a brewer that, that that tried to and has always tried to strive to to change do different things and change it up a little bit uh, and not follow that cookie cutter pattern. Sure. Uh, although we do have, like you said, we have our core brands that are you know that cookie cutter type thing. But that's the bread and butter. That's what you'll see in everybody's refrigerator. Uh, on a day-to-day basis, um, and then you have the specialties that hopefully that that core brand drives them to to want to buy the the specialty stuff. Um, and if we're going to continue to build that program. I see the industry itself is going to a lot of that, a lot of one-offs. Uh, there's you know a lot of slang being put out there, rotation nation, mm-hmm. uh, where you have a lot of bars that that. Uh, you know, they'll only have a brand on once every three months. If you don't make that, if you don't have that excitement uh, with your product, then they're not really going to uh, pay attention to you as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, so, do you see that business-wise as a, as a struggle for breweries, um, or is it something that you guys are learning to adapt to and just, you know, kind of having to go with the flow to continue uh, you know, either staying at where you guys are business-wise or, or growing? Well, I mean, it's we're always striving to grow, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and our business model didn't start this way, but we ended up uh, doing quite a bit of contracting, and that's still part of our business model now. Um, and little by little, we're, we're kind of replacing the contract with ours. Uh, but like, I can't ever discount the, the contracts because it actually helped me get to where I am now. Sure. Um, 
So it, it's kind of part of the brewery these days. And there again, that also helped keep the, the juices flowing because a lot of these contracts will come to me and ask me to formulate the recipe for them. Uh, and, you know, it, that gets a challenge to, to literally get into somebody else's head and figure out what they actually are saying they want. And, uh, that's, that's a fun, another fun part of the business as well. Uh, oh, yeah. And keeps you interested, I guess you'd say. How has the, uh, beer scene changed since, uh, you guys have opened and, um, how have you guys been a part of that South Carolina culture and been able to change things? Or at least uh, adapt and get people more interested in, in the different varieties of beer, especially something you know that can sell out so quickly, like a Belgian qua, a bourbon barrel aged quad. Right. You know, yeah, we we started, or I started, kind of sort of helping uh, people learn about beers because I'd been whenever I worked at Ruby Tuesdays years ago. That's that's kind of where I got into beer. Had nothing mm-hmm. to do with Ruby Tuesdays. There was a place downstairs that that uh, had a lot of imports, and back in the the early 80s, mid-80s, there were no craft beers around here. They, right. they didn't even bring it in. Uh, even though they were really getting started out in uh, you know, the, the western, northwestern states, uh, it just wasn't prevalent here at all. Um, and when I went down to tasting beers, I was like, I, I want a part of this. I want to I learn how to make this. And uh, from that point, uh it kind of blossomed out in 94 because I was making beer at home then and the brew club laws changed. Um, and I think that was the first step uh, in South Carolina to to start getting craft beer more prevalent uh, because before, pre, uh, prior to 94, brew clubs were illegal in South Carolina. Ooh. And the uh, restaurant that I was working at at the time asked me if I would uh, be willing to brew at at their at the restaurant. And it ended up my father and I bought the equipment, leased it to the restaurant, and that was actually when Thomas Creek was born. because uh, we were actually start with a uh, leasing company. Um, and three and a half years later we decided that we were gonna part ways. I didn't want to be in the restaurant business anymore. And uh he really didn't want to do any beer business anymore, meaning the restaurant owner. So we parted ways, and it was, you know, everything was, was fine with it. Uh, and we decided, my father and I decided that we wanted to do a brewery rather than a brew pub. It's there again. I didn't want to do the food. Back then, a brewery could only sell to, to and through a distributor. Could not sell on site, could not even, it was even illegal to sample beer on site. Um, so it was very restrictive. Uh, so if you didn't, your business had to be based on volume. Um, uh, you know, in, in 98 and early, or the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then the culture really started to change. Uh, we were able to get the, the alcohol laws changed, which opened huge windows. Uh, Georgia did it first and then North Carolina followed up, and then we followed up two years after North Carolina, and it was, we'd go by, wait, we always have in this state. I don't know why, but everybody else goes by volume, but us. And uh, so we put it in at 14% by weight, where Georgia was 14% by volume, and North Carolina was 15% by volume. 
So do the math. It's 17.5% by volume is what we have now. Uh, and that, to me, was the next step toward the culture in the state. Uh, and then we started working on getting, uh, having the ability to do tastings on site. That We got that passed. And we also got uh, the tank bill um, got passed when Stone was looking for a place to live. And also, we were able to sell packaged beer on site, but to a limited amount. We're limited to 288 ounces per person per day. Mm. Um, and once all that happened, and now you can have a brewery with a kitchen uh, that you can get a liquor license, wine, beer, you can sell other people's beer. Uh, all of these things are now available to a brewery. So for all intents and purposes, a, you can be a brewery distribute with no limit and also be a brew pub all at the same time. So that opened up a whole other era of businesses and business models in South Carolina anyway. This is, you know, emulating what what uh, other states and the bordering state, the state especially, North Carolina had already done. Right. Um, and that changed the culture drastically. Because now people could go to breweries um, and sample things that uh, they can't get out anywhere else. Um, you might find one bar that might have this one beer, but you can go to that brewery and know you can get it. Mm. Uh, so that, I think, changed the culture, and I think it's going to continue to change the culture. Um, and I think that's also what has spawned a lot of the breweries uh, in all states around here. Uh, North Carolina and South Carolina specifically. Uh, Georgia's still somewhat restrictive. Uh, they have recently passed some legislation to allow, uh, the sale of beer on site for on site consumption. Yeah. Uh, before it was, you buy a pint glass and we give you 48 ounces of samples, whatever it was. So they're opening up now as well. Uh, it's kind of ironic being that they're the ones that actually started the trend in the beginning with the alcohol law. So. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's kind of coming full circle now, uh, and the uh, the advent of the, the the federal tax excise tax being cut in half now, that's going to help. Um, and you know the next I think uh, South Carolina Brewers Guild is working on is to get the South Carolina excise tax lowered, uh, so it would help smaller businesses as well. Uh, so which yeah, I, think I think it's a positive positive way and I mean it's going uh you know a good direction. Um I think that you're gonna see more smaller breweries open up uh you know over the next few years than currently, uh because your the business model is walk in and you're they're looking for ninety percent of the beer that they sell is gonna be on site and just a small bit of it is gonna be off site for distribution. Sure. And for distribution-wise, for you guys, how have things uh, changed over these last few years, especially as, uh, you know, the regionality of things has, has started to really gain hold? Um, has that helped you Has that helped you guys change your ideas on how you wanted to grow? Well, I mean, we're, our, we are targeting quite a bit more retail on the outer-lying states that we're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were kind of lucky uh, before the other slang term that's out there, hyper-local, really started. So we already have our foot in the door 
in several states. Uh, we have pulled back a few because we just found that we were not able to, to spend enough time uh, on them. Uh, so we are just now in, we're only in seven states now, um, and it's a little easier to, to manage, to be honest with you. Sure. Uh, but uh, you know we're continually to continuously growing those areas, and these specialty beers is getting. It's helping us get into doors that that were not available before, uh, you know, because that's that's what people are looking for. They want something different, uh, and then hopefully, right alongside it, they find our our core brands as well, and it, uh, they kind of help each other. In my opinion. She walked from a dream.